This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Southampton Academy coach Keaton Wood. He discusses his passion for defending and how he transmits this to the players, some of the technical detail behind defending, such as which foot to use when closing down in wide areas, as well as his transition from former player into coaching and some of the challenges along the way. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Keats, appreciate you jumping on kind of last minute, mate. Saved me a little bit from um, a dropout or someone not very well. Um, I know we're both a bit conscious of the dogs making a sound during this podcast, so we'll see which one goes first. But uh, how are you? Are you all okay? Yeah, I'm doing really well, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity for bringing me on board and stuff. I'm I'm an avid listener as it is, so I'm happy to be here. Good. Well, yeah, glad to hear you, listener. Make sure you share it with friends, as I say to everyone. Um, so for the people that maybe don't know your background, etc., do you just want to explain, I guess, where you are at the moment and then, uh, I guess, a brief summary of, of how you've got to that point? Yeah, sure. So my name's um, Keaton Wood. I'm currently the under-10s coach at Spamford Football Club and their academy. Um, been coaching now for coming up five years this October all at the football club. Um, sort of before that, football's always been a part of my life, although coaching probably not so much. I'm quite, I'm quite new to it. So all my coaching years have been at the club. Um, so I really got into the academy football side about 15 at Palace, then progressed through at Millwall, did my um, scholarship and then gained a year's pro and then gained another year's pro after that. So two years pro at Millwall. Um, and then sort of from there, was going to do my UEFA B some first team like sub appearances and stuff like that and then it didn't work out as I thought it was going to and luckily with my head screwed on I decided to do that UEFA B and then from there um, got an internship at the club after a summer of sort of doing odd coaching stuff here and there and then working in school for six weeks and had an internship um, and then haven't really looked back since I sort of moved from back home in Kent and I'm still still going now so I must have done something all right. No, it's, it's interesting. Obviously, we, I know you and we spoke before about your uh, passion for defending. I'm guessing those roots are well set in, in Millwall and being combative and, and wanting to keep the ball out of the net. So we'll definitely touch on to that. Um, I guess the first question for you off the back of that is, how was that transition for you? Because as you said, you've done it from quite a young age in terms of going from playing into coaching and I think what's interesting there is you said about having your head screwed on. A lot of players that, you know, leave the game at younger age groups maybe don't don't have a plan B, et cetera, and just focus on plan A. So how was that transition for you? And what made you uh, kind of understand that you needed to have other options around playing? Yeah, so I've always been sort of the leader or the captain of my teams, whether that be football or any other sort of sport that I did. I always did them growing up and I really enjoyed all sport. Um, I've always sort of coached indirectly. So whether that be just going up the park and playing with older lads or, or girls or whoever, and then there'll be little ones there playing with you as well and always helping them. I've always had quite a, a good joy of helping, especially children out, um, sort of even family dues and stuff like that. So I've got a passion for being with children and stuff. Um, and then sort of doing my level two at, at Millwall, 
you know, I got, I, I really liked it. Um, and sort of people told me, you know, you've got a bit of a knack for it, Keaton. I thought, okay, there's maybe something there for maybe to continue. Um, and then I was, I sort of wanted to do my UA to be the, when I got my pro contract, but I thought, no, you know, let's really kick on this year. Um, they wanted to give me a two year pro, but I said, no, I want to earn my second year. Or just give me one year and I want to prove myself that I can do it. Um, so I, you know, I gave a year to my, my playing and then I thought, okay, let's, let's look at, you know, start my second year and take coaching from there. And I guess it was more about, look, I'm, I'm, good, at, I'm good at this. I'm good at leading people and helping people. It's going to help my football. It was, that was always my intention. That it maybe wasn't a plan B, although it, it was a good idea to have that in my, in my back pocket. But at the same time, if I can understand how a coach works, how can I do that for my teammates and, and sort of lead from there? And as I said, I just really enjoyed it. So that professional club, you might finish at two, three o'clock. Why not go and do something else and, and develop and learn and get out of your comfort zone? That was probably something for me that I, um, I did. And it just so happened that after some um, appearances on the on the subs bench for Millwall that I um, sort of got in the space of four days I was on the bench and then I was told I wasn't getting a new contract I was picked up and dropped you know really quickly and um, luckily enough I'd been accepted on the PFA course in the summer um, my UA for B and sort of didn't really look back from there as it were but the journey from then to, to Southampton was probably two Two months, two and a bit months, maybe, um, and that was a def that was definitely a transition. So yeah, it's it, it it was hard, it was tough. So talk about that transition. What was that like? What were some of the steps for you? So I didn't quite know. I knew that I so luckily I was playing non-league at Dartford on loan um, straight away, and I knew that they were a really good non-league club, and I really enjoyed it there. Um, so I was sort of wanting to just finish up the season, get my head around what I wanted to do I'm in September. I wanted to play non-league, but I wanted to go into coaching because I want to be in football. Now, I had some really good friends um, help me out in terms of um, Steve Salas, who was head of education at the time, sort of talked to me and helped me along. And he put me in touch with a Harry Watlin at uh, Millwall, who's under-14s coach, and he's now head coach of Hartford Athletic in the um, UCL out there in the US, and um, or USL champ, I should say. And um, at the time, he had, he well, he still does now, was, has a, a college sort of scheme and also a school, uh, school scheme as well. So come September, I sort of went into that and helped him out with working with A-teams, and we we, we done... I must have done that for about six weeks, helping out of school, it was just general PE stuff. And then I um, went on to LinkedIn looking for some more work because it wasn't enough. And Ben Barley at the time, FA Tutor now at, over at Fulham, he um, came on my UEFA B course in the summer in July, a couple of days. So I must have made some sort of impression. He sort of put me in, in touch with Ed Heed, who was head of uh, coaching at the time at Saints. And... Um, Within two weeks, I was shipped up and moved down to Southampton, 150 miles from home. Never, never lived on my own, didn't know what council tax was or anything like that. And um, had to grow up quick. And at the same time, I was still playing at Dartford. So three times a week, I was going back and forth from Dartford, training and playing. Um, getting, up, getting in at maybe 1, 2 a.m. in the morning, waking up at 6 to get down to the training ground. At that time, I would probably say my identity was I was still a player, whilst learning coaching. 
and now our pre-sale transitions definitely being a, a um approach now especially my knee injury and stuff um but i had to grow up quick but i was a sponge at the time in those sort of first year as it were just really soaked up everything tried to get involved as much as possible whilst also juggling my football and it was tough um but there probably wasn't a better place to learn than at Saints and they sort of throw you in the deep end and give you loads of support and challenge which, which was great um I'm sort of that character anyway throw me in the deep end see what happens um if I need some help I'll ask for it I'm not I'm not shy for that I've got no ego or pride I'd like to say um so coming from only playing football then coaching football probably transition was a bit easier because the uh schedules are a bit are quite the same it was all the other stuff the adult stuff of having to live by myself and finding the flat and things like that which is tough so obviously moving into Southampton as you said there it's quite well renowned for production of youth players etc what was the first thing that struck you compared to maybe some of the other environments that you'd granted played in but what what was the differences or similarities that you saw um so there's always that argument now of you give kids everything or do you make them earn it and at Saints I'll say we probably supply them with world-class facilities but they do have to earn it and I'm the character that is probably motivated by having the best stuff and wanting to be the best um and that are right or wrong I don't know but that's how I sort of am and that's what struck me was the investment in youth whether that be or it could be as simple as um we've got carpets in some places and places with no carpets and you play on the bottom pitches and work your way up so there was always a, a will for people to, to want to get better and earn your place and also people think there's a secret ingredient for saints um and the fact that they produce so much uh, and i was probably going in there with with that prejudice of there's got to be something here as a secret what is it and to this day, I still can't figure it out. I don't know what it is. I think the place just breeds good people and they hire good people and there's a good culture. That people care about football, one, but they also probably care more about children. And, and I think that's something that's really massive. We all care about each other. We want people to develop and do better. But we have a real passion for working with children and wanting kids to achieve their dream. That's probably as simple, maybe as organic as it, as it is. Um, so the big thing for me was there was no surprise. It was just a place that loved playing football, coaching football. Yeah, no, I, I, when I get asked that question, I answer the same same answer. Is there's good people that care and a, then a pathway. I think when you have those two things that align, you know, you're naturally going to produce uh, players, yeah. which, which is good. Um, so obviously you mentioned that kind of starting with the UEFA B etc with the idea was that it would help you in a playing context so and I, you hear it all the time where older people say if I knew now if I knew then what I knew now whilst I was playing I would have been a hell of a player what what did it teach you what things did you learn about I guess the craft of coaching sessions or the, the principles behind the game that you were then Granted, it was a short period of time. I know you said the thing, but when you're playing at like Dartford, etc., what were you able to learn that transferred across? Um, probably how tough it is to actually uh, put sessions on that produce the outcomes that you really want. Um, so it gave me a lot more patience with coaches, and it really taught me a lot how to deal with deal with players and attitudes. So that what was really nice on the PFA was that you 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 do it with 
quite big characters and things. So I'd like to like Titus Bramble and there with me. So I've got to pick his brain quite a lot and things like that. Um, and it probably taught me yeah, that, that patient side and the fact that if you really want to produce and really want to help players, it's about as much as what you put into it. So I was probably able to figure out um, what it was about coaches that made them good a lot better to help me, which I can then use to help my teammates around if that makes sense. So for example, probably my idol coach at the time and still one of my favourite coaches I've, I've ever had was um, David Livermore at Millwall. Um, and his level of detail was amazing. That, that really resonated with me. But some other teammates didn't quite like that. So it made me help to understand people better, what made them fit, how to talk to people. And I guess the more exposure you have to that, the more you, the more you understand it. Um, it, it, it put me on the path. Like I didn't know much about coaching. I was the youngest on there by a lot. I didn't really know anything about coaching. I threw myself in the deep end. I just learned really quickly from a lot of people. And by the time November came, I was the first one sort of signed off and, and raring to go. Um, at that time, Saints also put me on another UEFA B to get my youth module. So I've done, essentially done two in the end. Um, but yeah, it was probably the patience with people and, how, and the more you put into it, the more you get out of it and how tough it is to actually translate something on the pitch into practice to make them um, specific to what you want. It, it, it probably opened up my eyes a bit more, a bit more patience. And you obviously mentioned uh, David Livermore there and spoke about him maybe having a, a particularly um, prominent role in terms of of your development. Is there any particular interaction that you had with him that stands out as a real learning moment during during your playing days? Um, not, but it was it was probably just around looking at his because I still even now find designing practice quite quite tough. So the 11 v 11, I feel like that's that's where I can really do well. And it's breaking that down. So my brain just wants to complicate everything. And it's how just different... It, it was probably just, from a lot of people, how different brains can simplify things. And I'm sort of... I've, got, I've come so far in five years of keeping things simple. And actually, the world I'm working with kids now, where that's arguably better. There's a, if it's relatable to the pitch and it looks like the game, then that, you've probably done enough. And it's just about how you as a coach... Um, put your your stance and, and your identity on it um so there's particularly anything i can think of the top of my head it was a bit of a while ago now so as you can probably tell nothing really really sticks out no that that's fine i think that it's it's always in, interesting like coaches sometimes it's just the way the generic way that they interact with you and you know you might not be one specific moment at times but you know you recognize that that individual either resonated with you or didn't resonate with you i think we we hear a lot about the ones that don't resonate um and maybe not so much on on the ones that do um, he just showed a level of care probably that i just enjoyed um he understood me as i said about the detail and stuff and how i tick so i think we just we just we just got on um that's, and maybe that's probably overlooked in in, in coaching and especially in professional sport if you get on with somebody it's it's a really good foundation. Yeah, I wonder sometimes over there in your coaching, coaching pairs or coaching teams, the, the need for diversity of, of thought or characters is probably a big one. Um, yeah. I think if you surround yourself with people that are very same, you're probably not getting to all aspects of the, the players. 
uh, particularly yeah. performance level. If you can get a team that, you know, some are highly motivated, highly strung, others are maybe a bit more relaxed, hopefully across your team, you're going to have a group of people that can interact well with the individuals on your team. Because naturally, they're all going to be different and have different challenges and just act in different ways. Yeah, definitely. And I think at Saints, we, we, if you put all, all Saints coaches in a room and got other people to look at you, they could probably pick out which ones are the Saints coaches. We all have these similar traits. But when you go into the detail and you get to know people a bit better, like they, they are, they are different. It's probably sounds quite cliche, but people have different interests, different approaches to things. Some people are harsh, some people are, are softer, some people have a bit more of a joke, some people, you know, sterner. But, but we have that underlying trait that we care. And as you say, the club has a pathway. Yeah, 100%. So obviously, um, what, what you mentioned previously, and we discussed a little bit off air, is your, I guess, leaning towards the defensive side of the game. Um, now, you're a man after my own heart, because I'm 100% with you on this. I think it's a, it's a dying breed of player that likes to defend properly and whatnot. So I guess the first question is why? Um, and then the next question is, what are you doing to try and, I guess really improve yourself and solidify your coaching methods within this space why is so this is something i've always had a passion for since i was young um the why at the moment turning into coaching is i'm not particularly too sure as to what that looks like why as a coach all i know is why as a player i really enjoyed so i really enjoyed don't get me wrong i love on, on the ball stuff and if you saw if you've seen me play before being the center half you've you wouldn't think I really love probably defend as much as I love being on the ball. Um, but I love the nitty gritty side of, of stuff. And I think I really enjoyed um, finding out people when they're up against it. Now, for some reason, my brain, when you're 3-0 down, my brain could figure out, you know, which, which players had the character to keep on going and or play for a bit of pride rather than anything else. And I really enjoyed finding out which people have my back. Um it sounds really simple but I just love I love heading I love blocking I love the whole fact that I used to be called like the dream killer like, <laughs> like that was my nickname like it's because I just love diving in front of strikers who think they're going to come and score two hat-tricks against me and I'm there to stop them and go no you're all right you you sit down I'll take it from here I love the, the battle um, I'm not the tallest but I, I can always jump um, and things like that. I love that I'm, I'm maybe not the biggest or strongest as well, but very rarely did, did people get the better of me. Um, that's probably as a playing identity. I just I just loved it for the simple reasons of maybe taking a taking the ball in the face every now and then. Um, and as a coach, I'm sort of trying to translate that into how can I get my kids to, to enjoy it as much as I do. So some simple stuff I sort of do is just talk about defending with a load of passion. They see a lot of passion with me and me about and it comes out naturally. You can probably tell from how I'm talking now. Hopefully that translates to how they should feel and the emotional connection that we can have. Um, so I say it's quite a new adventure, but I'm sort of um, doing the really cliche stuff of getting, listening to podcasts, see if I can find anything, reading as much as I can, literally doing what my kids do on YouTube of finding their favourite players, finding traits, like my, I used to love um, Baresi and Maldini. I think we all, we all probably would if we looked at defending. And what is it that makes them excellent? Now, I haven't got, any, I haven't got a, a, probably a definite answer on that, but sort of doing that sort of stuff. Um, one sort of challenge I'm doing at the moment is giving myself 
five minutes sort of three times a day just to, just to draw up a load of practices as i said practice drawing practice and coming up practice is something i find quite quite challenging um so forcing myself to be uncomfortable with coming up with challenges coming up with these practices defending defensively and then sort of critiquing those after the five minutes making sure i do stick to those five minutes because then my brain can start going other places i might come up with 20 i might come up with five and once i think i've got potential i've sort of store away and then look maybe um progress those a little bit and sort of write around what is it sort of looking at um practices from a different angle of i coach the opposite so when we always do sort of attacking stuff at saints I look at okay defensively. How can I make this really tough for the attacker? Um, I sort of my brain sort of approaches the opposite first. Um, Have you got any stuff examples that of that? Um, off the top of my head, so it, it sort of, it, it might be sort of we're looking at a specific move of the week, um, and I think okay that if you're doing a double, if you're doing a, a scissors for example, you probably want to look at it's got to be some sort of fake in there. The, the attacker wants to go one way to the other. Okay, defensively, well, how am I going to stop that from happening? So I might want to put, they want to go one way, but I probably want to show them the other way. So I might put the defender on angle. I might look at, okay, what area of the pitch I'm sort of going to do this in. So how would a, a centre-back defend this? Or how would a full-back defend this? Um, it's probably stuff that everybody does, but I tend to do that probably straight away rather than go and look at the... Uh, move the week or whatever it might be what sort of specific um thing we're looking at um but that's something as well that I, i'm sort of with my coaching identity and sort of coming up with okay what is it about practice how do i functionally go through making up a practice because a lot of times i might turn i don't just turn i have an idea i go up that down and i look at it and i go this isn't working i'm quite a person to realize something isn't working and then get there in the end um sort of thing um not really anything specific, it just I've always found it easier to coach the opposite. Um, so yeah, and then some other stuff that I'm sort of doing is just trying to put my knowledge out there on my on my sort of Twitter, just put myself out there as to why. Because there's not many defensive coaches. I know that at Saints we're sort of doing it and England do it, where they have specific coaches, specific roles, and it's quite big in, in American football isn't it and we're sort of maybe moving towards that way now not specifically doing it for that I would just like to be if there's a defensive issue at the club or wherever I might be I want to be that person that people come to to you know to pick my brain because I really I really enjoy it so why can't I help other people um sort of understand defending a bit more yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And the breakdown that we're kind of going through, like you said there, with American football, it does feel like we're moving quite closely to that space. Obviously, now we're set-piece coaches and mm -hmm. uh, and whatnot. Um, I guess the question for me is, how do you go around managing the the technical detail that you can give to defenders and then with the age group that you're working with i know that you've been fortunate enough to work across multiple age groups etc so how do you manage you know going and getting an understanding of when to show inside and when to show outside body shape whether to be on front foot back foot how do you translate that to a 14 15 year old all the way down to nine ten year old 
not easily is probably the answer. I've, so at Saints, I've worked normally in the coaching path where you work age groups up. For some that for some reason, I'll let people be the judge. I've gone the other way. Actually, I've really found a passion for working with youngsters now doing the under tens. Um, probably because it's football is so raw. There isn't, although I love detail, I'm able to impart on that detail for them. So in my practices at the moment, it's just it's really about where you show where you show players and why. I'm I'm not particularly. I don't know if I have a view on really coaching defensive detail or technical detail at the lower ages because at those ages, the kids are finding their own profile. For example, in defensively, I'll give an example. Lots of people will talk about um, when you when you defend like side on, for example, should when you when the player takes you down the line, for example, or in the channel, should you cross your feet over or look shuffle really quickly, like side to side and for, for, for me, I was a crossover player because I could pick up the feed really quickly. Now, some people, like Ashley Cole, he talks about matching people's feet. That's probably why he probably played at the top level. Let's argue that. But he talks about matching feet and stepping really quickly. Now, I think it's really nice for players to sort of find their rhythm and find their way of how how they want to do it. So I can think of players in my team already that sort of show one way or they 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 are side on a particular direction because it's more comfortable for them and it's my job to sort of not mold them into a certain way but um probably perfect and how they can have their own style on their own defending now under tens is pretty much in these sort of scenarios try and keep them away from the goal in these scenarios you might actually show them towards bodies and and where you know the less priority uh, spaces or players um, I, I really like I really like the fact that some players you can really go into a lot of detail with, and other players are pretty much just like let me go figure it out. Um, and then sort of finding those ways to engage, and whether that be with some video stuff or just with a, a, a talk after the session. Whereas some players really like a stop stand still. Think about maybe shifting your body weight or shifting not me mean your body, maybe shifting your your body one yard this way to really overemphasize pushing them down the line because you're a really quick player. You might actually say to the player, go on, take me down the line. I'll, I'll be there to catch you. Whereas a slower player, I'm probably going to look, critique them or coach them a little bit differently. You can have that really individualised um, stance on, on coaching. So I'm going to pick up on something you said there regarding the, the defending out wide thing, because I've got some viewpoints on this, which we can go to in a minute. But if you're looking at regardless of what footwork patterns the individual uses mm -hmm. to match the crosser, what would you see say are some of the key factors that people need to, what the defenders need to do or need to have in order to either block the cross or potentially go and win the ball back? Um, I think patience is quite a nice one. Like I think people are probably too eager to win the ball back, especially sort of in our own in your own half. Um, now, actually, you probably could relate that to in, in the attacking half as well because it, it's not often that actually the first defender wins the ball. It's normally the second, which is um, quite interesting. But I think to, to block across, you're probably looking at Look, I think your body shape's a, a sort of a big one. Now, I've recently watched um, something on basketball where they speak about this side on approach, as it were. It's really hard to run if, you're, if your body's sideways. You can't redo it, but 
twisting your torso to actually the direction that you want to. So twisting your torso to where the player is, but keeping your legs in a direction that you want to run in. And that was something I probably never really thought about. That actually makes a load of sense. That oh, you, you, you put your legs where you want to run. You're probably going to run there. Whereas we talk a lot about kids being side on and, and shuffling and whatnot like that. So that's probably something to think about is where your legs are going. Um, so if you're looking to cut a player off, your probably legs are probably going to look across that line. You're, you're also can sort of shape them where they where you want them to go. I think your, your legs are going to be the things that get you there first. I think um, having a knowledge of timing, so that bit of patience, or when to when to know when to tackle. It could be an opportunity to nick the ball straight away. Now, if you do nick the ball straight away, are you really in a position to go and attack if, if it, for example, if there's only you versus four players? Whereas if you wait another couple of steps, then actually you might might be a bit tougher to win the ball back. But if you win the ball back, you, your players are in a better position for you to go and, go and win it. So knowledge of knowing and the time you're when to tackle is something big. Um, which foot to actually block with? Now that's that, that's a debate. Are you are you a crossover? If it's going down one wing and you're, you're the nearest foot, or you the let the the other foot to sort of stick your leg out, and that's a, that's a tough one. And and I don't, I personally am not sure if you can coach which leg to go with. Um, it all happens in a, in a split seconds. So that sort of stuff. I'm sort of really working out what scenarios work best for which foot to block with. Um, probably yeah, timing and patience are quite are quite big for me. Um, and I'll say probably direction of where your legs are going. That probably sounds really strange speaking about it. If I was to show what it looked like, it, it's, it's a lot simpler. And hopefully I'll be able to find the, basket, the basketball clip I found on Twitter and, and, and post that. So it's really interesting what you said there regarding the which foot to go with, because this has been a top of conversation that I've probably had over the last two years with people. So you mentioned that kind of for you, there isn't any set way. So if I ask the first question, what was your personal preference? And then why do you say that there's no set way? Or why do you think there's no set way? Um, I think if I, if I think back, I was probably a, I was probably a crossover. So for example, if I was playing left back, I would probably defend with my right foot outside to block across. Now, One bad thing, which I sort of realised, that was my natural way to do it. But what I quickly sort of realised, when I'm playing against a quicker player, is if my, actually that would be my backward leg. If that leg is actually in the air looking to block, I can't push off to accelerate. So I sort of had to quickly, that was probably when I got into that pro game. We're talking like real detail. So that took me a little while to actually to, to sort of realise, or maybe if I block with my, in this example, my left leg, if, it, if he does fake or he takes another touch, my back leg can then push me to go again. So in that, I would, I would maybe argue that what would it be? It'd be you're, you're facing that way, you're, well, whatever side of the pitch you're playing on that leg will sort of maybe block, maybe. Um, it was For some reason, I just got a lot of success with my outside my outside foot. Now, I think it probably comes from now tackling. There's two ways to tackle, I think, and that being you're either tackling to dispossess the player or you're tackling to get the ball back. And I class those as different. 
So it might be that actually I'm going to tackle you to get the ball into no man's land, stop you doing something, get the ball out of play, let us recover. Or I'm looking to actually tackle you to regain possession of the ball for myself, for my team. Now that way, now that's where you talk about it differently. So I got a lot of success actually from, from if a player's on the side of me, tackling with my closest foot, took the ball, then I can then take possession of the ball. Rather, I might be a smash with my other foot, come through the player to take them out, then tackle. I think that that's different. So there's probably an argument there that what is your actual goal of why you're tackling? And that's probably something that's not coached, really. Um, I don't think that even answers your question, to be honest, Mike. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> so I think for me, I, I agree with you. Uh, that's what I used to do as well. And the, the theory I have behind it is if I'm playing, let, let's use the left back or something you gave there, left back, we're both running back towards our byline. Um, I would go and try and block with my right foot, which is the closest yeah. to the player, um, because I felt as though I could get closer to the ball. So in terms of actually trying to stop the cross itself, if it is a cross, I can get closer to the ball by doing that. The distance that I can close over that period of time is closer. And if they did try and cut back inside, I back myself that I was probably strong enough upper body wise to give them a little, little nudge, if you like, or, or pull in the same direction. So they kept going line. Um, I think that the conversation I've had with a lot of people is around what you said there, which is if they do get you to go and then, you have to try and accelerate off. Either you've got to turn your back because you're trying to push and then spin round, or you, you know you're just going to be in a world of trouble because you're not physically going to be able to turn. Which I do understand, but I, I agree with you too. And I think that it is a personal pre preference thing, and probably relates slightly to your body type and and what what you physically feel like you're capable of doing and what what you're comfortable with doing. Um, I look at someone like Wan Bazaka, for example. Every coaching manual tells you not to do sliding tackles because it takes you out of the game. And he does, like, the best. he does like five or six slide tackles every game. Yeah. But how often does he lose a 1v1 duel in wider areas? Mm -hmm. um, and I, 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 list, I listened to a book called... Um, I can't remember what it's called. It was about Bill Belichick, the New England Patriots um, coach. And they were talking about the work they were doing with a punter and they do it off timing. So they want the punters to be able to get the ball, get rid of the ball within two seconds. And this punter wasn't doing the yeah. work pattern that they'd suggested, etc. And that his dad uh, or the coach had said to him, well, how long does he get rid of the ball in? And he went two seconds. He said, so that player has found a way to do it, his own style, but gets the results that you want, right? And he was like, yeah, I guess we'll leave him alone yeah. then. He said, why are you complicating it? Because everyone thinks you should have a two-step rather than a three if it gets the results you want. And I think that sometimes we forget that with kids and adult players. That sometimes people just have ways in which they're going to complete a task that isn't maybe the, the norm or the the manuscript but is effective so actually do we need to overcoach them in that environment or do we just say you know what they're good at that let's upskill the other bits so that if they play someone who exposes that they've got this other base level but let them do it the way that they want to do it because actually they're finding success in doing it that way 
Exactly. I think as as coaches, arguably you're indirect. You might you you probably think it's about you. Oh, I'm I'm coaching, so it's about what I want to deliver. It, it I I I don't think it is. I think it's about what the the players present to you. So, like for example, if an on the ball example is um, Thiago Alcantara or Nemanja Matic, they receive with their back to their their centre back to the fence nine times out of ten. And have a fake and outside the put and outside the foot up to roll. How how often are you taught as a number four or midfield player? No, you've got to have your body shape open to receive to go forward. All, always. Now I, I think there's definitely a definitely a time and place. There's definitely a time where you go. That's actually the quickest way to get there. But Thiago's arguably the best at the world in bringing people close to them, fake and go around them and explode. So why would you not use that to your advantage? Your advantage probably actually more more challenging. To, coach them out of that than is to make that super skill. Um, but yeah, defending wise, I was always, I was probably always the, the closest foot, as you say. And I was very much an arm defender. There's not a lot of times that if I got my arm out that anybody would have relate, regardless of size, was, be, was, was beating me with, with, with that. And when you speak about where you don't want to get your back turned, I probably take pride in the fact that I had good spatial awareness. So I knew that if I don't get this player to go where I want them or we've got too much space on, on both sides of me, then they're probably going to twist and turn me. I was actually quite good at overemphasizing where I wanted players to go. Now, some coaches thought that was maybe too far. But what they didn't realise was that I was pushing players to where I need them to go to go win the ball maybe two seconds later than they originally want. Because I wouldn't say I was the quick... I wasn't, I'm not slow, um, but I wasn't like... We're talking about real, really, really, really quick as a, a fallback or anything like that. But what I did do was those two seconds to, with that bit of patience was I allowed my team to get back into positions better. If they do cross it, they can win it easier. Whereas if I try and win the ball back really early or they twist and turn me, then I'm probably going to be in a load of bother and so are they. Um, so I do think there's an art, there is an art defending. And I don't, that's sort of what I'm going through at the moment. I, I, wish, I, had more, I wish I had more answers for you. Now, for me, it's uh, I always bring this to a level of predictability as well. One of the reasons I quite like a one-man press is because it does make it predictable for your back players. If you're able yeah. to show the ball down one side, it it provides potentially a level of predictability, predictability of where the ball's going. And as a defender, I love that. I, I back myself that if I know where the ball's going to go, I'll be able to time my interception or time my clearance and what you're saying there regarding you know I might overemphasize one way well at least if they do get a cross in we know exactly where that cross is coming from so your goalkeeper your centre backs your other fullback go okay well we're set up here the one that kills you is when you're all set up he chops inside and then whips it for someone running in late and you're yeah. like well I'm, I'm, we're set up we're in a world of trouble and that so for me I think that yeah I, I agree with you it sounds like quite similar and I, I, a good example of what you said around arm defending is Davinson Sanchez plays against Adama Traore a couple of weeks ago and mm-hmm. listen Adama Traore is ridiculous I, I was hoping Tottenham were going to sign him but it was interesting he, he went against Tanganga a few times and Obviously, young defender, very athletic, but at times struggle. Sanchez got Sanchez got close to him, and he Triore's tried to go inside, and Sanchez has just gone, "No, you're all right," and has literally got his arm out straight around his waist. And Triore can't move, and it's the first time I've seen someone do that to him. But I was like, 
okay, that's like a player identifying his super strength is that I'm physically very imposing and I've backed myself 1v1. So it'd be interesting to see that he's had a good start to season if that is the case Mm -hmm. moving forward and people identifying those super strengths and using them. Definitely. I love, I love, you're getting me going about defending. I love figuring out problems. I love figuring them out. Anything like puzzles or anything like that, I'm all over. And now when I'm tactically, when I was as a centre half, now people say that playing centre half was really boring. I love it. Although I'm not on the ball, I love working out where the ball should go in terms of if we're on the ball. Also, when they're attacking us, I've got to make decisions really, really quickly and how to talk to my teammates and organise. And I, I, I love that. And I really, now at Millwall, I was arguably not what you think of as a typical Millwall player, although I could be, at least, as you described, combative and making last-ditch challenges and things like that. Um, and I probably wasn't noticed as much as what I thought I, I was going to be or should have been. Um, but I loved thinking ahead. I loved thinking ahead of time where the, where the ball's going to go. And my trait was, I know the ball's going to go in behind me or go into a certain area. I was already there to intercept or I'm standing in that space already. Now, as a coach, that's something that's difficult or it's something that's maybe not seen to, to by coaches or it's the fact that you don't recognise players standing in faces stop the ball going there and that's an, that's an art in itself is prioritising space over man or goal or whatever it might be um, that's, that's what I used to love was as a, alongside my heading and taking it in the, in the nose and whatnot and things like that um, definitely figuring out the problems depending and how we can um, improve and everything like that I absolutely loved it yeah it sounds like we had a similar game keeps because that's what my thing was <laughs> I, I I, I pride myself on being able to play kind of anywhere across the back four. So like, I remember yep. plenty of games where I'd come off and I've played centre-back, right-back, left-back because of where they've made changes. Like, right, you're playing here, now you're playing there, now, now. I wouldn't say I was the best player in the world and happy, happy to admit it, it that. Worked in, it sometimes works in your favour to be versatile and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. So it worked for me that, as you say, you had loads of positions. Although I've pre- predominantly played left-side centre-half because I've been both-footed, um, we are the con of it is you're not nailed down so there could always be somebody that you know if there's a solid left side centre half I was arguably always the one that would have to move um, now nine times out of ten I would go and move whoever out of position but sometimes you might get that player that comes in and just goes yeah this is where I'm where they're going to play now and you have to go oh, right okay I have to learn something else but I like I enjoyed that I love the different problems that different positions gave you yeah, it's, it's interesting. I guess the, the question I have at the moment, and it's off the back of watching um, the, the cricket, actually, watching England versus India, which is how do we prepare players to either play in different climates or could we learn better in other cultures? So obviously, having spoken to some people internally that used to work in cricket, that they mentioned that, you know, we send players... Uh, to Australia for, for summers or winters or whatnot. The, the Lions teams will go and tour in subcontinents, etc. For me, in a football context, I always wonder whether the, the EPPP system now is breeding a lot of very good ball-playing defenders, which, you know, players yeah. being more comfortable on the ball is great. What would happen if uh, 17s for half a season 
we had an individual who went out and played in Italy. Yeah, I, I think there's. I always oh, when you're in the, when you're in the game or in like the pro game as a player, you, at eighteen twenty, you, you never go out on loan. You, you rarely do you, you say if you're a sixteen year old in that scholarship year, you just you go out on you go out on loan. Now, who who you might imagine to, to go out on loan? That's that's a different that's a different um, kettle of fish. I do think there's scope that of just sending players to. Um, non-league clubs or different different areas of the world I think I, I think it's great it could even be just changing your your training your training environment so like um, we sometimes go to goals a lot at that Saints um, and that brings a whole different environment out to it of if, if I'm loving defending there's not there's nothing better than 5v5 in a cage now with obviously with 9 and 10 year olds you've got to be careful of them hitting the fence and stuff I do sort of say to parents like this is it's going to be a bit gritty. Your, your kid might get shoved up against the wall, and they might get hurt. But it, you know, it, it, it is safe, and they've they've got to learn that. So I definitely think there is scope for sending people out. I do think you've got to be, um, if you can imagine being seventeen year up years old, going out to another country on on your own could be, you know, quite daunting. So as long as the level of support is there, and I don't I don't see why it wouldn't be beneficial. Maybe however long that might be is down to the club, but. I, I, I would have, I would have loved it as a young, as a youngster. I just think the cultural side of it as well. Like, and you can say it's stereotypical, but you talk about like the Spanish and how composed they are on the ball and how they want to play. And that. if we've got a centre back who's physically imposing and maybe need to work on that, for them to have to go and be in a culture that that's the paramount, mm-hmm. that's the thing that you have to be able to do. So coaches may have different ways of working with individuals that to improve that or the type of game might force them to become more comfortable in Italy it is you know like ultimately Benucci and Cialini over the Euros was a masterclass of yeah. 36, 37, 38, 39 or whatever they are understanding the dark arts of defending and doing what they need to do to win the, the foul on Saka is a perfect example of that I saw a lot of people that maybe don't watch football saying are oh, that should be a red card. Whereas for me, as a defender, I'm going, he's done what he needed to do. He's, he's yeah. realised he's made a mistake and gone, okay, I'm going to take one for the team here. Worst case, it's probably going to be a yellow. Even if it's a red, it's last minute, I've done what I need to do. Um, and I, I, I think that sometimes culturally, whilst it would be a challenge for a 17-year-old to go abroad and you know the challenges that brings, would ingrain him in a culture that values those skill sets that are different to what we do here increase that learning journey would it really like uh, would you see a kick of it yeah i i think so like i always wanted as a youngster to go and play in in italy for the sake of the, the defending they just produce defenders now i'm not necessarily saying that italy the italian style of football is my favorite but the defending you can't fault their defending always wanted to go into like Germany or Scandinavia as well, because they're just combative with them and without the ball. Um, I definitely think there's there is there is scope there to do that. Definitely, it's um it, it is an interesting point, and I think I think you could maybe have some tinted glasses if you if if you see something and you can't quite get into it, your ego might come in and go, "Oh, I can maybe can't coach that specifically. We've tried this, this, and this. What haven't we tried? Are oh, we haven't actually tried?" send them to the experts or somewhere 
why not? If you've got the you know budget to be able to do that and the facilities and the capability to do that, why not? I think it's session design as well, right? And session things that like you said there that you know we we the younger age groups might place an emphasis on doing moves that might be completely different to what they would do in those countries. They're going to work on we're going to defend first, and if you get to attack off the back of it, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so just how session designs may change over that three month, six month period might just uh, you know adjust your thinking and again it would improve you holistically if you've got to learn how to cook for yourself you've got to embed yourself in a new culture and, and whatnot I, yeah for me yeah. I just think if you've got the money to do it it would be a really interesting way of doing it I remember just this is with all going over to Inter I went on there like a, like a three-day tour about maybe four four years ago or so didn't they didn't they they most of the time in their training, they trained with maybe arguably four cones, five cones. That was it. Because the players knew where they needed to stand and what the coach was looking for. So an example of this was like in England, and I, I'm not a huge fan of it. And I found it so boring. But the old passing diamond, I can't, it, it never, it, I, I can understand it as like a warm-up thing. I totally get it. But I don't know if it teaches all, all that much, if I'm being brutally honest. And in, in, in Italy, sort of similar to the Barcelona thing about the mannequins, like why would you go and stand and mark yourself as a mannequin and then push off? So I always speak to my attackers or people on the ball about if you've got a line of four, four defenders in front of you, what do you see? They always say four defenders, but I say, no, you've got to see the space. So you've got to see space around players, between the players, in front and in behind. If you just switch that mindset as a coach of what is it you're looking for, then it might help. So going back to the info, like looking at these kids, knowing these passing patterns with only four cones on the pitch, knowing where they need to stand. Whereas in England, we use cones as a mark of where to go. But actually in Italy, it was a case of you've got to play around these cones. Like, and the pattern was just, it, sort of, it looked to be ingrained from a very young age. Um, yeah, so talking about session design, one of the reasons that kind of wanted to get you on here is I know you've done a lot of work on 1v1s um, and trying to make it, I guess, realistic to the game and, also looking at how we can turn it into 1v2s or 1v3s, etc. So do you just want to talk about some of the work you've done on that and then how you relate that to what the players need in their development? Yeah, so it, it was something that I found really challenging, pretty still do, as I've already alluded to. But myself and a, and a fellow coach a couple of years ago sort of got into, okay, we, we talk about 1v1s a lot. Now, how can we really make these specific the playing positions and, and really what we want? Now, in the younger years, 1v1s are all geared around a lot on skill that the person on the ball wants to use, which is fantastic. And kids to, you know, be at one with the ball and try different things, which is fantastic. And as you move towards the old the age group that we sort of had at 12, is we sort of, now he's, I'll, I'll, I'll give him the credit, it was his idea. And it was maybe around not specifically what moves you want to occur, but what pressures are on you. So we sort of shifted our thinking into, okay, what does the pressure look like and why? So what I mean by pressure is where is, where, is it pressure from a, from, a, from a player? Is it pressure from space or so restricting space, whether that be on the byline, um, just condensing space, so it, the space in the centre of the pitch looks completely different to what it looks like out wide. Um, time of the game 1v1 will look very different if it compared to the middle of the game to maybe the 89th minute um, and then and the 
really simple of pressure of where is the goal. Um, and then what other examples are there? Um, well, where, you, where, where the defender's coming from? So is it is it that they're coming straight in front of you? Is it that they're coming from the side, from behind, which is probably something that 1v1s you don't often see. It's a sort of recovering 1v1. Um, that was sort of what we wanted. And then we sort of moved into, okay, what players in our team do we want to look at? Sort of what position? And what we used to do is turn up we knew the idea of what pressures we wanted. We turn up and go, okay, let's go stand as a centre half. If we're looking centre versus striker, where you where you want to go and sort of you know defend, as it were. So I go stand where I would have played the ball, where I would have looked, and we would then hone out an area of the pitch where, you, if we're looking at specific around, um, go back to defending as we are at the moment. If we're looking for the centre half to force play wide, the pressure is going to be in you're going to be in front of the attacker, as it, as it were. So you're probably looking to shift the, the, the play one way. So actually you're looking to be like offset. So your pitch isn't going to be in the middle. It's probably going to look for your sort of offset to one side. Now, then you talk about the direction of, of where the ball's going to come from. So if the player's probably coming at you from a wide position, you probably want to give a bit more space on your outside shoulder because the goal's probably inside you. You look at that, whereas if it's probably coming straight at you, you could argue that okay, you give it, a, you make it a bit more elongated, but you stand the, the, the defender in the middle so that the player can go one way or the other. Um, and then you, you, we sort of moved into okay, how do you want to constrain it? Is it that you've only got two seconds to go score, or however long it might be, not two seconds, but however long it might be, depending on the um, type. And then I sort of threw in a lot of okay we always do a 1v1 where it's sort of a maybe a little pass for, as like a trigger for the receiver to then receive and then the, when you engage in your 1v1 now i i sort of argue that the older age groups that very rare when, when are you going to see a three yard pass then you then you then go and engage the defending what I said was, why don't you start with like maybe a, a passing pattern further up or a rondo or a possession base? As soon as it, you achieve what you want to achieve, passing or score a goal or whatever, you then break out into a bigger passing pattern. And whilst that's already going on, you, you, your 1v1 defender is already looking where they stand on the pitch. They pressing up the pitch, they pressing down the pitch. And then as soon as that person engages into their area, they might, the ball might be a rubbish ball that's really slow. So as a trigger, as we always say, then you go, you can go high. But actually, that ball might fizz, or you might be playing it somewhere you quick, and they might receive the ball on the move. And already, you give them ten yards space in front. If that ball's already in front of them from like the rondo pass out, and they're then receiving that at top speed, the space you've got to defend isn't ten yards. It might only be five, six yards instead. So you've got to make those decisions quicker. Um, we then always toyed around. Okay. Scoring system, what to do? Is it a run over the line? Is it a stop the ball on the line? Is it a big goal? Is it a mini goal? And we sort of toyed around what sort of worked best in all areas of the pitch. And if we're honest, having a big goal work every anyway gave that more intensity. I think and it's more realistic if you, if you put a goal in that. I know it's a buzzword and realism, but you just want to really, although how much as I love defending. I see a goal, I can't help but want to go and score and smash it in the back of the net. Now, you might get the argument of, oh, 
if you're in that wide left-hand position we've spoken about already, where, you, put, where you, put, you don't put the goal up where the goal is, your goal might not be um, an essential goal of a traditional goal that is in the middle of the pitch. You might put it that actually attacker you're looking across. Your goal is actually to cross the ball here in, in, and you cross it how you would cross it. Now, teaching that to the players was challenging because whenever a kid sees a mini goal or a goal, you usually say, I want you to pass it in the net. They're not passing it. They're smashing it. So that took a bit more, a bit a bit longer. I think the older players, it, it worked. Look, they understood about, we're not looking to score a goal. We're looking to cross or we're looking to pass through the line, something like that. Um, hopefully that explains sort of like the, the, um, the process of what we went through. And then we sort of then look, maybe go, okay, why don't you do that? You could take it then one step further and you have... Possession rondo, you have your 1v1 in the middle, and actually what it's not just cross, then you have a bit of free play at the end. It works into three sections. That was something we didn't really get around to it. How do you work that in? Obviously, for all of that, you need a lot of players, and people might not be privileged, privileged to that. But I think any coach can work with where do you position the goal, what area of the pitch you, you're doing it on, and where is the pressure coming from, and what do you want to achieve? And if you consider those things, um, I think you're, you're onto a winner. And then it's down to press and press and preference of um, who, who you put in there against who. So we were very big on matching people with what we want to get out. If it's a kid that's maybe physically not as imposing, knowing the challenge and support model we've got, saying, okay, and the, I guess the well being of the player at that time, we put them up against somebody who's going to, you know, challenge him really bad or really hard, I should say. Or is it that we actually, we, him up against somebody that maybe matches them to see who comes out on top. Um, and that's the individualised of knowing your players. But it was a really interesting process working around moving from what you want the person on the ball to achieve rather than where the pressure is. Yeah, I think that the where the pressure is coming from is, is a really big one. As you said, how often do we do work with um, players receiving with pressure directly behind um, or mm -hmm. recovering defenders or, or what that looks like. I know I haven't seen the clip of um, Lukaku and Jamie Carragher has been resurfaced recently about Lukaku saying yeah. how he would do. But I think whilst that's like obviously a former player against a current player and stuff, it's a really interesting clip to show you like if we did more of that, defenders would have more, more skills how to compensate against someone Lukaku. So yeah. like if you know you're talking about the disparity between smaller smaller players and bigger players well have we got this player at the moment that finds it physically challenging to play against these individuals so how are we going to teach him these skills are we going to put him up against Lukaku where he's just going to get rolled and bashed every time or are we going to match him up where potentially he can actually work on him with some success and some failure um so I think that idea of theming it around what the individual needs are and then obviously what where the pressure are is really, really good. Um, and also, like you said, around the goals, it's, it's a really interesting concept of not having it on the where the goal would be, maybe having it as like a, we all talk about second six-yard box. Well, can we get a goal in that second six-yard box and work on them crossing the ball into that from the wide areas? Um, and yeah. you get obviously certain points from it. In terms of for you as coaches, what outcomes did you see? Was there anything particularly that stood out after going through this piece of work? Um, obviously, as I said, I sort of mentioned the goal thing already. You just got more emphasis from attackers to one another. 
probably make it quicker, more intense. And that and that and that was um really interesting to see. And then I guess you can take it one step further and actually don't put a goal in there, you actually don't put a scorer in. What does that then do? We didn't really quite get on to that. Um, so that that was good to see. And we saw the level of competitiveness just rise. So those players and I think we were really skillful in matching players up. I think that's really, really important. Um, and it's matching them up, whether that be for their super strength, you're trying to, you know, really help with that with, or you're really looking to challenge them, knowing why you're doing something and then knowing why they're doing it and understand because kids aren't stupid. They know why you're matching them up against somebody's maybe dealing them. You don't have to say anything, but they know. Um, it was really good see the level of competition just rise in the group and as young children they love competition now i don't i i always have the argument that football doesn't need to be competitive it is an art it doesn't need to be competitive but by nature it is how do you in that competitive environment bring out the patience the, the flow of the game um, but it was really good to see that as youngsters they really enjoyed the variety of what pressure looked like because as you, as you mentioned there, that one about, okay, big lad, go, go up against a small lad, go, just go stand on him. Now, a small kid's going to have to learn about uh, not being pinned about not, and then things like that. So it's it's interesting, though, how they do that and figure that out. And it was good to see which players could figure out problems. Now, in the moment, figure out the, what's happening in that moment. Which was, which was nice to see. So if they're being pinned, okay, I need to maybe not be pinned. How do I do that in that moment? But you also see the kid that just turns up and just does what's asked of them and doesn't do anything different. So there you might have a thing going think about, okay, have you thought about doing this, thought about doing that? So you have a bit more coaching there. But then also you've got the kid that might just try something. You don't need to coach them. And then, they, it's, then it's their turn to have a break. They're already thinking about the next one around what they what they did good, what they didn't do well. I'm going to try this next time, um, which was which was nice, and that sort of relates to. I don't know if anyone saw, but in the in the Olympics, you got oh, was it a Swedish pole vaulter? Can't quite remember. But every time she had a she had a um, a go, she would go into a notebook and write down what she did, what 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 how it went, and then for her next try, she would always focus on something to make it better. Um, and you always see the kids that do that. So I appreciate the competitiveness went up. Um, I mean, and just the environment, they enjoyed the environment of the, of, of the variety and then which kids were more problem solvers and which kids probably, you know, were complacent or, or relaxed. I think that's a really interesting one because we talk about wanting to produce good decision makers or good problem solvers. And my, my opinion is they're not always necessarily your best player. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel that sometimes those that are able to solve the problems the quickest maybe have to out of necessity at times. Now, that might not always be the case, but I think someone who's naturally good and can dribble past four, five, six players, if they've got that skill, they that gets them out of trouble a lot of the time. Whereas actually yeah. someone who isn't able to do that, they have to solve problems of how to combine or they have to solve problems of where that first touch needs to go to protect the ball because otherwise there's a lot of failure. Is that something that you you would agree with from the work that you'd seen? Yeah, definitely. I, I can relate that to like a my own experience was as I said, I'm, I'm only I'm six foot, so not like the biggest centre half. And 
you can play against massive, massive people, both tall and, and, and wider than me. What I quickly had to learn was if I'm being pinned, like how am I being pinned? Well, obviously, I must be standing still too much. And I started to, to figure out, oh, if I start to stand on this shoulder of the person in this sort of scenario, the striker might follow me to pin me. But actually, I know the ball's going to go in over here. As soon as they come over here, I've dragged them this way. I'm looking to already go here. So already look, looking to keep on the move. And that sort of brings out things like timing. So I move over this. In this second, I move in this direction. The ball might already be there and I might already be out of it. Or if I look to step really early or drop really early, that might do something else. Um, yeah, I definitely think that allowing kids to, to um, figure out problems is, is good. I think the skill of the coach is knowing when to help them, when not to help them. And that's something that's massive at the moment. That coaching isn't always direct. It's very much let the practice do the talking. And then as and when you see fit, have a little bit of a word or you might demonstrate or do something like that. Um, that's something with my defending I'm really figuring out because you go into a practice and a kid, after one go, their head might be completely gone. They don't want to do it because they don't like defending anyway. And that's natural. That's fine. Do, do I go in there and coach them with a load of detail around how to make it better? Do I make the practice easier? Do I put them up against somebody else? That is a good, those are really good like challenges for me as a coach. But then you've got a kid that, you know, didn't have success on the first one. So they want to grind it out, figure it out. Now that kid, I might just leave alone and let them and let them do it. And then we'll talk about it afterwards. But I always think that you need to connect the learning. So, oh, I saw you did this three times ago. Do you remember? Yeah, I do. Have you thought about doing this? If you just leave them to figure it out by themselves, I, I um, and not have a conversation with them at any one point, then I, I don't know if you've really... Arguably, if, you, if, you've done, if you've done your job, if you've got a, a perfect coaching practice, then really there wouldn't be any need for a coach, would there? So there's, there's got to be a, a time and place for a person to talk to a child or vice versa, really. Yeah, no, agreed. I think you, there, there always needs to be some support. It's just what that support looks like. And where do you yeah. see this bulk of work going? So what, what do you see the extension of this being? Obviously, it's a good work in terms of the diagnosis and analysis of it what do you see as the next steps being as a challenge for for the players and how this can evolve further um 1v1s are probably massive at the moment aren't they they're like arguably the best thing in to work with in football they're like that's like that's like the buzzword isn't it um what you put with especially environments that i've been in arguably most of the things but we're losing Coaches always talk about the technique of the game, whether that be passing or, or finishing. So I think practices may be looking at how you connect the 1v1s patterns is, is going to be quite interesting. So I was always sort of alluded to about I, I tend to maybe connect a passing pattern or a finishing pattern into a 1v1 so that it, you couldn't, you arguably, you couldn't tell if they're working on their passing, if they're working on their 1v1 or working on their finishing. Obviously, that comes with cons like they're not going to get as much repetition or anything like that. But arguably, if you work on your practice being um, effective enough, then there's all that, that whole argument on quality over quantity, isn't there? So that's personally where I've looked to evolve my practices is connecting different practices together so that arguably it might then free up space for other stuff for more practices if that makes any sense at all 
Yeah, no, it does. It 100% does. Yeah. <laughs> right. Last question from me. Um, and if you've listened to the podcast before, you probably know where I'm going with this. But who is the either the best player or coach you've worked with or against and why? Um, best and you, player you, I've... you can't say me. I know we've played five sides <laughs> and stuff. You just discount. Say, take me as red and then kind of go yeah. from there. Oh, that takes away my answer, I think. <laughs> Um, best player I've I've worked with and why? Um, I'm, I don't know. I don't really. Or know. coach, so it can be or a coach. coach. I'll go with I'll go with the coach. That's probably where I identify myself at the moment. But I would probably he had a lot. He had quite a big impact on me um, when I when I, I sort of started off as my coach. You know, I'll probably say it was. It was a um, coach called Tony Salantino at, at Saints. Now, I'm not saying this, he's like the best coach I've ever completely worked with. He made a big impact on me. And by that, I mean that as a coach, you've got to have emotional connection to people. And that's probably something that, although I love helping people, um, my empathy and things like that was always tough. And working with children, it's not, a good, it's, not, it's not a great thing. But working with him and his culture, being of an Italian background, it was really nice to see how he connected people through his own voices, his, his gestures and his, and his coaching behaviour. And that's something that you asked me that question, what is coaching at five years ago? I would have said, oh, putting on, putting on practices and getting the best out of football. I've evolved that into, it, 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 it certainly is. And I, I would probably say that my job is maybe 30% coaching football and 70% actually dealing with players and people. Or people first, and I think he was—he was absolutely excellent at that. I know he's like a gosh, he's got a good shout out there. Perfect, yeah. I, uh, obviously, knowing Tony, I agree with you. He's very big on the holistic side and getting to know the people and stuff, which is great. But Keats, listen, really appreciate your time, um, and hopefully, we can catch up again soon. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.